therapy, blind and happy. So, the last two therapy podcasts gave me a ton of information. Instead of marching forward into a new topic, I'm going to slow down a little. Let's look at what I found out in the last two sessions. One, I suffer from an attachment disorder because my mum couldn't show me love. Two, since my big breakup, I've been a disaster in relationships. Firstly, because I may suffer from a light form of PTSD and trauma from my last big breakup. Secondly, because of my attachment disorder. And thirdly, because I've dated three men who are still immersed in their last relationships and probably have guilt about their children and their parenting. Number three, I probably have a slightly warped perspective of men because of my childhood influences. And four, I'm 51 and a single woman trying to navigate the online dating world. I'm not even going to talk about what it's like to be 51 and a woman. Well, okay, maybe I should. I'm five decades and a year old and I look it. Honestly, about four years ago, I looked 10 years younger, but I just went through menopause and like most things I do in my life, I went at it really fast. No messing around barely took me a year. One morning I looked in the mirror and thought, jeez, I look old. My skin changed its oh, flexibility no. pretty much overnight. How did that it happen? is what it is. I use creams Where and eat well, but I'm 51. That is the reality. Should I do Botox to make everyone around me feel more comfortable? No, I shouldn't. I'm old. I'm more than my bloody face. I've led an amazing life and I'm wearing it. I didn't wrap myself up in surround wrap. I lived. But this obvious shedding of youth is hard on one's self-esteem. I'm trying to be an adult about it, but men used to look at me when I walked past them and they've stopped. I was at a bar the other day when a rather out of shape, not super attractive male friend of mine actually said, I'd sleep with you. Like, I should be grateful. And worse, I was picking up my son from school the other day, and a child asked my son if I was his grandmother. <sighs> it's just really sad. This did not happen four years ago. Four years ago, I dated a guy six years younger than me, and it was fine. Now, yeah, no. I don't think a man six years younger than me would even look at me. So I have to change my self-image into an old-age pensioner, I guess. Oh. Men who eat well and exercise just get grey hair and kind of just get hotter. It's so they can go out with 38-year-old women when they're 50. No one blinks an eye. So, so what chance do I have of finding a 51-year-old man? None, really. My sister told me to start looking for hot 65-year-old men. Men whose daughters are at university and they're retiring and just want to have fun. But men on average die five years before women do. I don't want to find the love of my life and have him fall face first in his cornflakes one morning and be left alone again. Anyway, my point is my self-image is screwed because of menopause, not age. Menopause. Men. Men. Oh. Pause. Pause. Men. 
pause. <sighs> so, let's go back to the top. What I'm afraid of is that I've spent my whole life being me. I'm a bit nervous of change. What if the new me is all sparkly and good? What if I became all law-abiding and anal and made shopping lists, etc.? Will I stop leaving my wallet at the grocery store? Will I start remembering people's names? Will all the changes be positive? Will I stop writing? It's funny because as I'm writing this, I'm thinking I have actually stopped being as forgetful and I am becoming more organized and responsible in general. Is that all because I'm becoming more centered? If we all became well-adjusted adults, would we be as much fun? Have I been having as much fun? Well, yes. Pound for pound, I think I'm laughing more these days. Maybe I'm cured. I went for a depression test at the doctor's once. It was right in the middle of my huge breakup where I actually thought that I might be having a nervous breakdown. I was sitting in the doctor's office on that bed thing. I'd lost about 15 pounds in six months and I wasn't huge in the first place. I was starting to get worried. The doctor came in and it, I explained, I'm having a lot of stress recently, I'm going through divorce, I'm eating but I'm losing weight, I'm having trouble sleeping and I just keep shaking all night long. Tremors. The doctor's response, well you look Tremors. great, but maybe you're suffering from depression. Tremors. So, she gave me a list of questions. The one I remember most is, when the telephone rings, do you think it's going to be good or bad news? Bad. bad. I remember as a child running to answer the telephone. In fact, me and bad. my brother would literally tackle each other running to get the phone. Bad. Now, I do just think, oh no, bad. danger. I think the fun all stopped when I was about eight and I realized that mankind was not looking after the world. I remember sitting at the kitchen table and just being absolutely floored by the idea that people were chopping down the rainforest and yet the world needed the rainforest to breathe. I remember the Russian nuclear threat and an ad on TV where you'd see this big explosion, the mushroom cloud, people's bodies being disintegrated as this wave of nuclear wind washed through them. I've spent my whole life worrying about the environment. I think about it every day. I often wonder what the point is. What is the point of anything? When the planet is about to just overheat. And the saddest thing about this is that I now have a son and it looks like I was right. Not that worrying helped. I tried for a while to do something about it. I worked at Greenpeace but even canvassing for Greenpeace felt like working for the man and that it was somehow corrupt. Why was I getting paid? Was I raising as much as they were paying me? How much did we need to stop the world from getting eaten up by big business? Fear. But was I not right? Fear. At Greenpeace, they would give us lectures every day about some Fear. other world's terrible tragedy and I just feel Fear. so bad about it. It led me to going home and into my attic room I rented and literally shutting the door and crying for three days. When I came out of that room, I decided that it was out of my hands now. 
that unless I dedicated my life to change, go picket and lie down in front of bulldozers, then I was a hypocrite and then I was just going to move on. I abandoned those feelings like I abandoned other things I loved in my life. I walked away, but they've been sitting in my brain my whole life. Just sitting in the corner, carving initials on my mind wall. Is being centered and happy about learning to become completely, absolutely delusional? In a world where corporations are pretty much always hiding stuff, lying and poisoning us in slow and hidden ways, how can we expect it to be happy? How can I be happy? That's the truth. That's how I feel. It's like a movie I saw recently where there was this evil thing flying around and if you looked at it, you became a zombie and ran in front of a train or something. So only blind people were living, happy, oblivious. Hmm, this is a little depressing. Let's go have a drink. <laughs> anyway, so that's my question for the professional. Are happy people delusional? Is there a healthy way for me to carry my feelings of hopelessness when the world keeps showing me that I was right? How do we deal with the end of the world? Hmm, that's probably not a fair question. But anyway, let's ask the therapist. Just sitting in the corner, carving initials on my mind So my name is Jason Koenig Bauer. I'm a registered psychotherapist. Um, I'm also um, trained as a Gestalt therapist. And so I was actually in Toronto, in Cabbage Town. I attended the five-year training program in Gestalt therapy. Um, previous to my training in Gestalt, I completed my master's degree at the University of Toronto, actually in theology and um, spiritual direction. And um, yeah, I've been trained as a psychotherapist in different types of modalities, hypnotherapy, EMDR, um, uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, trauma-focused therapies, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, <laughs> all the different kinds of therapies. I've always had an interest in learning more about therapy or how to deal with more complex issues, especially with trauma. Right. Yeah. Um, Gestalt, is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, Gestalt. Gestalt. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're a German or Austrian name? Yeah, it's um, it's a German name. Yeah, my so. grandfather is from was born in uh, just a town just south of Munich. Okay. And he came to Canada before the war. Okay. And um, yeah, and my mother's English background and Ukrainian. So, okay. <laughs> and so Gestalt yeah. is German as well, right? Yeah. And and so can you explain what that is? I've not, I don't know what Gestalt therapy means. Well, Gestalt, um, it's it's a it's a form of psychotherapy that was created by um, a psychiatrist, Fritz Perls, and with his wife Laura Perls. Um, so he created a form of psychotherapy um, by investigating how people heal and that meant going into different types of um, um, thought at the time like incorporating aspects of Freudian thought, Jungian, um, uh, the work of uh, Morano who did psychodrama, um, Uber um, and other like Zen Buddhism and Eastern philosophy okay. and uh, 
So Gestalt therapy came up with what's called the cycle of regulation, how we move through our emotions um, and how we resolve certain things like unfinished business, um, how we can let go and release pain, um, how we can enter more fully into the present moment, into our experience, and how to grow as human beings, how to develop. Right. Yeah. Okay. Jason is very clever. About now, my inner voice is piping in that I really should have done more research and know these things about therapy if I was going to have a show called Therapy. Yeah. <laughs> my inner voice is telling me that I really have to get my shit together. But anyway, on we go. Then I go into talking about environmental fear, fear for the environment that I've had ever since I was a child. And that... I guess I feel like society tells me to to bottle it, and that yeah. I have kind of. Okay. Um, and you then your response to me in your email was that it's something that you're dealing with a lot right now mm-hmm. because of the environment, especially this week. Yeah, you know, um, it's an issue that's definitely you know um, spotlight in the media. Um, I'm seeing a lot of negative. Facebook slamming of uh, Greta Thunberg, yeah, Thunberg right? I think yeah, she says yeah, it, Thunberg. Thunberg um, yeah. And I'm just, I just wonder about the psychology of like how people want to just not see it, not see that we have trouble with the environment. Is that mm. a defense mechanism? I think so. I've had actually had a couple of clients dislike that young lady. <laughs> dislike her. Yeah. Um, that was all propaganda mm. type of thing that her, maybe her parents were using her um, to get her into the spotlight, you know, whatever. So people are going to come up all sorts of, of things. Or that she scares children, you know, um, that she's giving their kids anxiety. So um, as a defense mechanism, yeah, sure. People want to think about the future, that it's good, it's great, it's... You know, their um, children and grandchildren are going to have a good future. Um, this earth will be a, a good place to live. And yeah. so thinking about, wow, it's not going to be? Well, that's a real downer. Yeah. You know? Yeah. That's, um, especially with people who have maybe struggle with feeling hope about the future. Um, that mm. can compound it. You know, that can drag a person down. So let's be optimistic. You know, that can be a defense too, being overly optimistic um, and avoiding reason and logic. And, uh, you know, um, <laughs> I remember I had a, a father-son that I was counseling and dad was optimistic about everything and his son was pessimistic about everything. Yeah. <laughs> you can see how it was, it was a kind of a creative adjustment to his father, you know. Yeah. You know, being imbalanced with everything, you know. Mm. Yeah. A creative adjustment to his father. I like that. That's so your kids are adjusting for you. They don't even know they're doing it, but that's what they're doing. My thing. Hmm. Yeah. At a very young age, I, I really felt like I was, I had no control or power. I think mm-hmm. that's probably mm-hmm. it sitting at that table and realizing that people weren't looking after Mm -hmm. the world or me. Mm -hmm. Would that be... As a child? Yeah, Yeah. as an eight-year-old. Okay, so who do you feel was taking your power? I felt like... disempowering you. 
I felt like it big business like big business mm-hmm. that there that mm-hmm. they were untouchable mm-hmm. and that yeah. I had it's like an abusive parent big business okay you, know? you look at it as a parent that who's um doesn't listen um, who uses manipulates controls that type of thing yeah it could be a projection onto onto that okay sure. yeah so if so I'm feeling about it like it's an abusive parent mm-hmm. because it's an yeah. important figure in my life like yeah. the future mm-hmm. yeah um so how so wait stop there's a lot here okay so my eight-year-old brain just figured out that the world wasn't going to look after me that big business wasn't looking after us and subconsciously triggered the fact that my mother hadn't been looking after my needs as a baby and that I felt the same so I felt a lot of emotion about the environment but it was the same emotion that I felt because of my mother so I still feel like that Mm -hmm. like I still look at um the world and feel like it's so big the problems are so big that that mm-hmm. so how 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 do you deal with that kind of emotion like how do you put that in a place where it's not i feel like i have a failure to thrive a little bit mm-hmm. as a person mm-hmm. because of and i'm wondering if part of it was that moment sitting at that table mm-hmm. realizing that someone that the world wasn't Okay, so if you go back into that particular memory or moment, yeah. there's probably a decision, especially because when you felt a very strong feeling, which compromised maybe your sense of self or identity in the world, okay, right. in that, you just in a split moment, you may have made a particular decision there as a child. Yeah. Do you, do you think you know what that decision is? Um... I think to to voice this maybe to to not to to not try to to be a passenger mm-hmm. because it was too big. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the decision there could have been made that it's just too much, and I'm not going to get ahead anyways. Yeah. Yeah, and so whenever that feeling comes again, that same thought may accompany that feeling. Okay. Yeah, and so really, it's about. Not necessarily having to change the feeling because sometimes, you know, negative feelings are just part of our experience, right? Like feeling that you're losing your ground, like the, you know, the, the um, carpet's pulled underneath your feet. Like, it can yeah. happen. Anyone can do that to you. <laughs> yeah. Right? But if it's happened to you before, the feeling will accompany a belief system. Usually a decision that you made, like, I'm not going to trust other people or... You know, trying so hard, it's not worth it because I'm just going to lose in the end. Yeah. You know, um, then your brain switches into like a different network. And um, you, depending upon how strong it is, um, will determine how a person will react with anxiety or depression or, um, you know, certain kinds of behavior patterns that are based in the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those are those kinds of decisions are are things that happen quickly yeah 
and they can become unconscious, definitely. They're implicit, that they are decisions that were made, and the brain remembers them. Implicit. Involved in the nature or essence of something, though not revealed, expressed, or developed. Hmm. So when people talk about rewiring, mm -hmm. that's going back into those moments yeah. and trying to tell your brain to take a different route. Yeah, you want to connect the rational brain back into those feeling states, okay? So that eight-year-old, you know, you can look at it, you know, symbolically, it exists inside of you. Right. Okay, because that was a really important moment, so okay. your brain would have stored that very differently. Okay, and um, you can go back into what that eight-year-old was feeling, okay? But you also, the, the rational part of your brain, you know, sometimes it's referred in um, um, therapy as your adult self. Your adult self is connected to reason and logic in the present moment and knows how to plan for the future. So that state within you, because that part of you is in the survival part of the brain, would just feel a very strong feeling, you know, accompanied sensations, thoughts, behavior patterns, it's really linking the rational brain back or the adult self back into that part. Right. So what I like to do with clients, I say, you know, let's let's go back to when you're eight. Yeah. Where do you feel that pain of that eight-year-old? And where do you feel that in your body? And so sometimes I'll get just our clients just to describing, you know, being in the present moment, what that sensation feels like. Yeah. You know, to re not to be afraid of the pain, okay, because that's anxiety. We want to move past that phobic layer just to get a sense of you know, being a little bit detached but yet observing it. What is it like? Okay. And then bringing the rational part of the brain back onto line and say to that part, that eight year old, you know, what does that eight year old need to know um, um, right now in the present moment that she doesn't know? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So you connect the parts together. Yeah. And maybe that part also needs a boundary. Right? So, you know, as a kid, maybe you felt bad and you know, yelled at a parent, but you know, um, maybe a parent said, okay, I need to make that child feel good, so here's a bowl of ice cream. Yeah. <laughs> right? See how the child got conditioned. Every time I feel bad, I'm going to go eat ice cream. Right. right. <laughs> eat, a whole, eat a whole container of ice cream. That's no problem as an adult. Yeah. Right? Especially when you're trying to lose weight. Yeah. You know, so that part says, like, that feeling is not acceptable. This is how I feel good. Okay, um, and it's impulsive. It's based in the past. It's a repetitive behavior um, that's not linked with necessarily the present moment rational mind. So doing these podcasts is is interesting because I edit them and I get to go over and over what he said, and um, it's I'm, I'm starting to think listening to him that a problem I may have is that I didn't ever really acquire a grown-up rational mind <laughs> I still feel I still feel like I never grew up I don't know if that's because I'm the youngest child or I just I just didn't I still feel about things all the time super intensely like a child oh boundaries I don't yeah boundaries, boundaries. no we didn't. Yeah. We didn't have any boundaries. Ice cream is your yeah. coping mechanism yeah, to whatever way it comes out. Drug it's, addiction. It's or the feeling from the loss of attachment. So what happened? There was a disruption, 
the parent may be yelled at the child but didn't apologize, didn't comfort them, didn't soothe them, just gave them a bowl of ice cream instead. So hmm, what happened in my household was that my father used to yell at everyone all the time. He had a fiery temper. We'd sit on the stairs and listen to him screaming at my mother. But he also was one of the funniest guys you've ever met. And one-on-one, -on -one, probably one of the best people you've hung out with. So we just let it go. When your dad yelled at us, I think we just, we just let it go. Or so, did we? I suppose, and part of me unrealistically wants answers. Well, if we get, we feel sometimes if we get all the information, that our anxiety will lessen, the tension will lessen. And sometimes that works, of course, right? You know, if you don't understand um, how to solve a math problem, you go and get somebody to teach you how to do it. Okay. Once you learn, okay. you have the knowledge and the tension reduces. But there's some situations where the knowledge doesn't reduce the anxiety. There's not enough knowledge. I see this a lot of what happens in affairs, actually. You know, they're called betrayal traumas. When someone's betrayed in a relationship, they want to know everything that their partner did with that person. Yeah. They think that if they get all the information, that pain will go away. No. It doesn't. Right. Yeah. 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 No. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's hard. It's hard to be good with all these gadgets and Facebook and spying. spying. You, you can't, can't help, help it. it. How, how can, can you, you how, how can, can you, you not, not spy? Oh. Yeah, obsessive behavior, terrible. That is very, yeah. very interesting. Mm -hmm. can't help it. So who gets through their childhood without some stuff like that? Yeah, we're not meant to have it easy. <laughs> some right? people do, right? Some people get Well, that's again, like maybe some people aren't as yeah. emotionally. Yeah. So, okay, this is. But, but just put it this mm -hmm. way, even kids who grow up in great loving families when they encounter evil in this world, and I mean evil is like bad people, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, in situations where they're abused for the first time, or manipulated, or they don't um, know how to cope necessarily. They have beliefs that people are good and... Yeah, so know, it's harder yeah, on them? It can be sometimes, and I've, I've had clients like that. You know, they've gotten into relationships where um, they thought they were getting into a good relationship, and then they kind of met the other side of the person, you know, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde yeah. type of, you know, situation. And all of a sudden they're being controlled and they really don't know what to do because they don't know how to protect themselves because they never really had to. Yes. Jason had to go out at that point and sort something out and it left me sitting there and I remembered a boyfriend that I had once that had the best parents and they lived in a lovely house and it had the picket fence and the green grass and they had uh, two kids and a Labrador dog. They had, and the parents were lovely and he was lovely and a hippie and he was just so full of love and completely useless. <laughs> he was the most unadjusted useless. Oh, he was sweet though, but yeah. Yeah, they were too, everything was too good and he, he couldn't deal with the world. There's no, there's no way of doing this easily, is there? No. So that's, it's sort of nature versus nurture a little, mm -hmm. again, that question, yeah. when you start looking down into therapy, you, you ask that question a lot, right? Yeah. What is yeah. our personality or, and what has 
been pushed on us or what has mm -hmm. like we've grown as we've yeah. because my so siblings are interesting too right because you mm -hmm. can be very different extremely different from your sibling and that's nature yeah you know because you grew up in the same house with the same parent yeah i remember in my gestalt therapy training we talked about birth order oh. and um, so there's like the different theories around birth order but there's always expectations on the first child you know parents are excited the first time the yeah. child walks or says their first word and they have um, all ideas about who this child is going to be. Yeah. A lot of it's a lot of pressure. Yeah. You know, so those children tend to be very willful. Um, sometimes they are, um, their role is to look after the family, really. Right. Um, you know, um, and the second child sometimes gets to be more in their emotions because there isn't that pressure. They're allowed to feel more than perform. Yeah. You know. So I'm the fourth. That nobody the had fourth? any expectations. What I understand, I forget who, who, <laughs> who um, came up with that theory, but the fourth child is unlike the other three. Oh. And um, sometimes they're more creative. Well. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, this is a, this is a strange question, but I'm doing this podcast, and I'm kind of, I, as I just put it, in, uh, I'm sort of putting myself on the slab mm -hmm. a little bit and allowing people into sort of my brain who are complete strangers mm -hmm. and I more than anything else people ask me um, how does that how does that make me feel sharing so much of my personal information mm -hmm. and it doesn't make me feel anything is there something wrong that I should not care mm -hmm. about sharing my personal life with complete strangers okay. <laughs> <laughs> well I would say there is a feeling there you're just out of you're maybe not in touch with it I yeah so um, if you actually get more into the present moment with that, okay, so you would actually start to feel something. Okay, so yeah. not, do, do people spend a lot of their time not in the present moment? Absolutely, yeah. You know, there's a lot of talk about mindfulness and being in the present moment. Yeah, when we go into the present moment, we start to feel some pretty shitty feelings. Oh, okay. So it's it's an. <laughs> it's not easy. It's not no, easy. No, it's not right because you hit reality in the present moment. We're always trying to avoid reality. Sometimes, you know, um, you know, we're always moving towards the future of our own vision or our mind. We're, we're always moving, moving towards, towards the future of our own vision in our own mind. mind. Am, Am I? I? I feel like, like I'm, I'm not moving. moving. Right. You know, um, so we're constructing reality in our imagination that is not necessarily true. You know? And we don't know it. And we don't, don't know, know it. it. And we don't know it. You don't know it. And we don't know it. You don't know it. So you can't tell me how to save the planet. I feel like I'm trying to see if there's anything else. All right. One last question because this was mm -hmm. great and yeah. we got we did a lot yeah. just just for just because I would love to hear what you say about mm -hmm. this um, so as a person I've noticed I really like being the underdog if I'm the underdog I will like I love it I will <laughs> work so hard but as soon as yeah. I'm on top yeah I kind of get really I don't deserve it you know and yeah. I self-sabotage and so I'm the underdog again yeah Okay, so in Gestalt therapy, this is something that you want to research because you can understand a little bit more about it because it's a fascinating okay, I will. concept. It's called top dog, underdog, split. 
Oh. You know? Yeah. So you'll see the top dog underdog first in um, childhood with a parent. The parent is usually the top dog, okay? Okay. You know, saying, you know, saying to the child, you know, this is how you should be. Okay? Right. This is in terms of how you should, you know, act and behave and the do's and don'ts and, you know, some of those interjects, belief systems the child takes in um, are good, right? And sometimes they're not. Okay. Right. So when they're not good for a kid, a kid has to adjust to that. Sometimes that kind of belief sticks inside of them and they kind of feel feelings of shame or disgust. Okay. But the child knows is that that parent's not going to get control from me. They're not going to control me. Right. I'm going to win. I'm going to underdog them. So I'm going to tell them, yeah, I'm doing what you're saying, but do something completely different. Okay. <laughs> In that adjustment, there's an amazing amount of creativity, right? The child learns, you know, <laughs> different strategies. Right. <laughs> and how to get their own needs met because the parent is not meeting that specific need okay. of the child, you know. Right. So um, top dog, underdog, you know, it can play throughout life. Now, in Gestalt, we say the healthy position is the underdog oh. because they're more creative and flexible people. People who are more top dogs tend to be a little bit more rigid types, okay? Um, and the underdogs are creative, but the underdog can become unhealthy because they don't take any support from others. They always want to do it their own way. Mm. Yeah, no, no support. support. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much. That was really great. It was just really nice to meet you. Yeah, I was just talking about yeah. with you about this. Yeah. Oh, baby, would you cry for me? And you knew safe house by the sea.
supporting my podcast if you'd like to become a sponsor or help support this podcast then you could send a donation or get in touch with me through the website or please sign up on my email list on my website or a really nice way to support me is to go to itunes search tamara williamson and buy one of my records there's about five of them on there and that would be really really a great way to support me um so i can do more A lot of time and energy went into these, as I'm sure you can imagine, but I've loved doing it. And the last thing I want to say is that if you're feeling alone and maybe that your brain isn't working quite how you want, then just know that you're not alone and there's help out there if you need it. This is what it's like to be dyslexic. Explicit. Implicit. 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 Okay. Involved. Fucking idiot.